0: Welcome back to Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds. This is our second pandemic special here. And today what we have for you is a great interview with Dr. Martha Robinson. She's our colleague in history here at Clarion. And we're we're really excited to explore some of these great questions about the history of pandemics in general, not just the Spanish flu, not just the yellow fever, but pandemics as a human experience. But before we get to that, let's welcome our esteemed co-host, Jeffrey Diamond. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, living the quarantine life, that's for sure. Finally, we're done with snow, I hope? I hope so as well.
1: <laughs> well, but- that actually the introduction sort of is important that we also acknowledge Matt Albright, who teaches in our Department of Communications. He's been behind us every step of the way, so to speak, remotely helping us deal with the edits and making sure we sound as good as we can.
0: Yeah, Matt's been great for us. And so we just want to make sure we give him a quick shout out. And especially because we're continuing to do our social distancing. And so we're still on Zoom. We're still pulling audio from that. So he is going to do his magic behind the screen, make us all sound great and get this episode out to all of you. Yes, thank Matt.
1: And our initial podcast in this special pandemic series focused on the science behind the disease. In this episode, we want to turn to the historical examples of pandemics. After all, this is a history podcast. Now, we originally were going to pair both our interview with Dr. Robinson, which we'll focus on here, about the history of pandemics, in early Pennsylvania particularly, with a discussion about the 1918 flu pandemic in the region. But we just felt the interview with Dr. Robinson was so good. We had to air it in full.
0: Yeah, really. This was a great interview. And, and we know, obviously, many of you are fans of history. As Jeffrey just said, right? This is a history podcast. But, you know, we're, we're moving away from the local. that That's supposed to be our niche is this PA Wilds history. We will get back to that. I promise you. Next episode, we are going to talk about the Spanish flu in the Pennsylvania Wilds. So we're going to get there here. But today, we thought it'd be really good to have, since we do have an expert in sort of colonial America and and the history of medicine, to really have a great interview with her. So we're going to talk about the yellow fever pandemic in Philadelphia, and the history of pandemics and the human responses to those pandemics in general. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jeffrey so he can introduce our guest and you can strap in and listen to the interview.
1: We are continuing our special episode series on the coronavirus and pandemics in history, and we are really happy to be joined by our colleague in the history program here at Clarion University, Dr. Martha Robinson. Dr. Robinson received her PhD from the University of Southern California, focusing on early American history with a subspecialty in the history of disease. She teaches important classes for us here, including the American Revolution class this fall. Welcome to the show, Martha.
2: It's great to be here with you today.
1: Thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, so Martha, this must be a really interesting time for you as a, uh, you know, a historian of medicine and disease in the colonial era. Uh, you know, can you give us some idea of what your professional focus was as far as like medicine and disease?
2: Absolutely. Um, this current situation is particularly interesting to me because it's a new disease, and my dissertation, um, as you probably know when Europeans first came over to the Americas, they brought all these diseases, smallpox and measles and whatnot that Native Americans had never had before. And so Native Americans died in really large numbers. And my dissertation focuses on how the English understood those deaths. Basically, what did it mean to the English when they moved in and all of a sudden all the neighbors started dying? did they say oh god caused this which they did sometimes or did they say here's a scientific and medical explanation for why the native americans are dying which they actually did more often that's
0: actually rather surprising for the time Hmm. period
2: yeah you would think and it's you know in the textbooks there's there's one super famous puritan quote where some puritan says something like god has cleared a path for us in the wilderness and so the textbook version is very much oh the colonists thought that God was killing the Indians and in the reality it's much more complicated than that and people came up with much more scientifically oriented hypotheses.
1: So what were some of the hypotheses how did they understand it in terms of science and maybe religion and and what did that how did that how was that affected by their English persona so to speak?
2: Sure um, I'll I'll take that as kind of a two-parter, first religion and secondly, scientific. Um, On the religious side of things, you did have people who explained Native American deaths as, you know, it's the hand of God. Um, And in a lot of modern writing that comes off as very racist, but I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of 17th century English theology. The 17th century English theology says, everything is the hand of God. You know, if smallpox kills the Indians, it's the hand of God. If plague strikes the city of London, which it does over and over again, it's the hand of God. If my house burns down, it's the hand of God. So, you know, the religious argument is that God is the root cause of everything, both good and bad, whether that's disease in America or disease in London. So that's the religious argument. The primary scientific argument is actually an environmental argument um, in the 1600s and 1700s uh europeans believed very strongly that people's bodies were formed and shaped by their environments and so people would be healthiest in climates that they were familiar with so you know if you have an english person from cool wet england who moves to hot, humid Virginia, that's not good for their health and they're probably gonna get sick. And lo and behold, they did, they died in huge numbers. So that really seems to support this idea that you know you want to stay in the same kind of climate that your body is accustomed to. Uh, but this really sets up a huge problem for Native American diseases, because if Native Americans are living in the same place where they always have, and yet they're suddenly dying in large numbers, then what has changed? And the major argument that the English are gonna make is that, well, when the English moved in, the Indians started living in different ways. So they started trading with the English and wearing English clothes or, um, you know, acquiring English domestic animals or eating English food, you know, so the change of manners and customs and diet they think probably has something to do with why the Indians seem to be so much more susceptible to disease. That's really
1: interesting. Hmm. I don't know if Mark has a question, because I was thinking if I just one more, I don't want to cut off Mark, sorry. <laughs> but if that's the case, it seems sort of odd in a sense that, well, we don't, we don't understand this today. Is this for the average person maybe, or if we're not virologists, but I don't think they've really understood viruses and bacteria the way we do now.
2: Oh, certainly not.
1: They couldn't understand that. And this this comes to the argument about Columbus and the Spaniards coming to the new world and uh, how the Aztecs had a lot of problems due to disease such as smallpox. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say that they really fully understood what was going on in terms of like purposely doing it alone, let alone uh, how it spread. So they can only explain the things that they can see. And what you're describing is what they see.
2: Yes. Yes. Um... One of the great debates in early modern medicine is whether disease can actually be transmitted from one person to another or not. The pro side that, yes, one person can give disease to another person, um, the shining example of that is syphilis. It's a new disease in Europe in 1494, which makes a lot of people think it probably had a new world origin, you know? Columbus comes to America in 1492. Syphilis shows up in Spain and Italy in 1494. Hmm, I wonder. Yes. And syphilis is so obviously transmitted from person to person that that's a strong argument in favor of that. Yes. But for most other diseases, the thinking is less that people transmit disease from one person to another, And more that people are exposed to the same environmental influences. So, disease is caused by you know bad air, or disease is caused by excessive humidity, or disease is caused by a conjunction of the planets. You know, but whatever that cause is, whether it's humidity or a conjunction of the planets, that's something that would be affecting all kinds of people in a large area. And so you can explain, you know, you can use that to explain why so many people would be getting sick at once.
0: So one of our students, Christina, asked, um, when did the first pandemic occur and what actions have humans taken to control pandemics?
2: Well, that's actually a really hard question because you know disease has been with human beings forever, uh, but writing has not. So uh, we know that epidemics would have been much less common the further back in time you go because the further back in time you go the smaller the human population is and the smaller human communities are so if you are back in the paleolithic and people are hunters and gatherers you know living in small communities let's say some horrible new virus shows up well it could wipe out that whole community before they even saw anybody else So you're not going to have disease that turns into epidemics. Also in the Paleolithic and Neolithic, uh, people either have no domesticated animals or they have fewer domesticated animals. So the diseases that are shared between people and animals aren't on the scene yet. And people don't have cities. And all pre-modern cities are disgusting and filthy. You know, just the difficulty of getting rid of human and animal waste and people living together in crowded unsanitary conditions without running water so until you have writing you don't know much about epidemics until you have major cities you probably didn't have too many major epidemics Uh, the first really major epidemic that i'm aware of would be a plague and i say plague loosely we don't know what it was uh, a plague that struck athens in 430 bc during the peloponnesian war um, the symptoms, people had high fevers, People people's eyes got inflamed and red, their throats and their tongues got inflamed. Um, lots and lots of people died. Uh, there's another major plague that strikes Rome in 165 AD that probably came from um, Asia. There's, you know, further plagues as you go along, and they all seem to be pretty much linked to the roman world there's a plague called the plague of cyprian in 250 starting in 250 ad there's a plague called the plague of justinian starting in 541 i don't really think that it's like oh somehow only it's the romans who ever got sick it's that we have really excellent sources on the romans and we don't necessarily have such excellent sources on other parts of the world
1: but the roman empire connected to these different parts of the world yes
2: it absolutely did and so so they could have
1: brought it from there and also brought it to there so then no doubt china for instance may if we don't have record we may would have it too probably
2: yes absolutely and you know the um the thinking on at least one of these plagues is that it was probably brought from asia by the huns so yeah but then again see as soon as i say that i think it's also a long-standing story in the history of medicine to always blame outsiders for your diseases yes. so whether there's really good evidence that it came from the huns or whether that's just something that some roman said back in the day i'm not really a, a you know a specialist on roman plagues so i can't <laughs> say that.
0: why it's can't you be a specialist them. on every plague? I should
2: be a specialist on every plague yes. <laughs> if only
0: we had the time <laughs>
2: Um, Oh, right. I'm sorry. There was a second question there. It was the actions that people have taken to control pandemics. Yes. Um, These are amazingly constant over time. Um, Number one, you try and treat sick people with medicine. What the medicine is might vary from place to place and time to time, but you try to treat sick people with medicine. Um, You also provide nursing care, even if the medicine isn't available or even if the medicine doesn't work you know so you gotta treat people with nursing care to give their own immune systems a shot so you make sure they have a blanket you wash the fever sweat off their bodies you feed them broth you make sure the fire doesn't go out so those sorts of things are just standard issue nursing care uh, then there's quarantine which the first use of quarantine that i'm aware of Um, comes from the 14th century in Venice when the Black Plague was striking. And, you know, Venice, it's a great trade center, and the Venetians understandably would like to keep plague out of their city. So they require that infected ships or ships that might be infected, you know, just sit there for 40 days before anything can be unloaded. And then probably the A number one response that humans have taken in the case of pandemics, run away. If you can possibly afford it, disease strikes, get out of town, go as far and as fast as you possibly can.
1: And bring the disease with you.
2: Well, see, that's the, that's the thing, because sometimes this is actually a great strategy and it works brilliantly. Um, if the disease is something like yellow fever that's spread by mosquitoes, Yes. Get far away from the mosquitoes and you will be fine. Exactly. If the disease is something like smallpox, you might be carrying it with you. And you, you managed to go 200 miles before you get sick, and now all of the people living in the village that you just arrived at, they're gonna get sick because you came there. Exactly. But it's, um, there's kind of a debate in the Middle Ages about whether fleeing from a plague is moral or not. Because there are a lot of Christian thinkers who say, it's not, you know, here you are trying to save your own life, but at the risk of infecting all of these other people, you should stay put. But people don't want to stay put. There's plague. They want to get out.
0: You know, and we see that today, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many communities that are asking people to stay home. Don't don't come up to your lake house or your cabin. Or when it first started in New York City, I was reading an article about how the prices for homes in the Hamptons like to rent for the weekend, were going through the roof. Because yes. people were trying to get out of the city. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's incredible that, it, that it's remained that constant over Oh time.
2: yeah.
1: No, that's a, yeah, that's a moral issue about people think I'm not gonna get sick so I, won't, I don't need to quarantine, but you can be spreading a disease to someone who is more vulnerable. And there you have a moral issue about where does your rights end and those people's rights begin too. yeah
2: exactly
1: and your right to travel i mean you have to find compromise Mm -hmm. these are issues we're still debating
2: absolutely yeah
0: well dealing with uh something a little bit closer to home and the state of pennsylvania or the commonwealth of pennsylvania i should say um you were studying up on the yellow fever epidemic of philadelphia in the colonial era
2: Yes, there was a major outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia in 1793. I would say it's probably the certainly one of the best known epidemics in all of colonial America. Um, best known epidemic in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania for sure.
0: And and you mentioned that mosquitoes are typically the cause of yellow mm. fever. Uh, do they know where or why all of a sudden 1797 yellow fever breaks out?
2: Um. It's, I mean, there's, there's nothing particular, particularly special about 1793. And this is not, it's not the first epidemic or the only epidemic in colonial America of yellow fever. I mean, there's yellow fever in Boston in 1693. There's yellow fever in Philadelphia and Charleston in 1699. Uh, New York City gets hit by yellow fever multiple times. Um, but just this Philadelphia one, um, it's particularly large. The United States is young. Philadelphia is the nation's capital at the time. You have a number of super famous people who were present in Philadelphia at the moment, like Washington, Jefferson, and Hamilton. Um, Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. And Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is the most famous, famous physician in all of colonial America uh, treated patients during this epidemic. So, you know, I doubt that it's the biggest yellow fever epidemic that the U S ever had, but it's, it's famous.
1: Do you know how much it may have spread outside of the Philly area a little bit, or was it more contained to the, because of the port and access to, you know, trade, through the transatlantic trade, is that more why it was Philadelphia itself? Yeah, no.
2: It's Philadelphia. It doesn't, it doesn't spread. Um, because the thing about yellow fever is it is indeed spread by mosquitoes. And being a port city, um you have ships that come from Africa via the West Indies. Uh so they would bring the mosquitoes with them. You have docks, you have wharves, you have standing water, you have bilge water. So you have not terribly clean streets, you have just standing water all over the place. And that's a fantastic breeding ground for mosquitoes. And once you get out of the city of Philadelphia, you don't have those conditions anymore. So yellow fever is not really going to spread beyond Philadelphia.
1: How did they treat yellow fever?
2: Actually, this was extraordinarily controversial. And when you look back on it, it's kind of ironic because the primary medical thinking of the day, and this is represented by Dr. Benjamin Rush. He is as up to date as any physician in America. The primary medical thinking of the day says the more severe a disease is, the more serious its treatment needs to be, the more dramatic a remedy needs to be. So it's been an ancient and accepted practice if somebody has a fever for example to bleed them which is not as crazy as it sounds bleeding can indeed bring down a fever but you don't want to bleed them three times a day taking a pint each time oh my! that's what benjamin rush does he says these fevers are so high this disease is so extreme we need to bleed people to a degree that has never been tried before and if you're not bleeding people you're giving them Drugs that will uh, purge the bowels, let's say. And yes, and he goes similarly dramatic on that side as well. Um, This this becomes known as heroic therapy. And (laughs) lots lots of people actually like it. Lots of patients kind of demand it. There's sort of this sense that disease has thrown something really, really out of whack in your body. And there's, there's different medical theories about how these remedies work, but they all sort of have the idea that, oh, they're, um, they're really dramatically getting rid of the bad stuff and that is going to restore you to health. Benjamin Rush, who I kind of admire in a lot of ways. I mean, he could have fled the city and he didn't. He stays there. He runs himself ragged night and day. He's working with all of these other volunteers. He is doing everything he can think of to try to save people's lives. And I'm pretty sure that all that bleeding and purging people. Um, Then there is the opposite school of thought that suggests that Benjamin Rush is out of his mind, and, you know, it's calling for much milder, much, much more um, supportive measures to try to help people pull through this. And that was probably more effective. Um, But at the time, you know, people really admired Rush for his heroism, people really thought that powerful dramatic remedies were probably the ones that were going to work and so it's this weird ironic position where with the very best of intentions rush almost certainly made the epidemic worse
0: how did how did the governments of either the city of philadelphia the commonwealth of pennsylvania or, or the federal government respond to this outbreak do you know
2: <laughs> they closed down and left <laughs> I
0: mean,
2: that, well, you do have to remember that we are talking about 1793 and the federal government is much smaller than it is today. The powers of the federal government are much less than they are today. Nobody in 1793 really thinks that the government has a role in managing epidemics. And really, what would they do? I mean, nobody knows what causes this disease. Nobody really knows how to treat this disease um, I mean, I guess in some ideal world, I would say, well, gosh, but, you know, maybe they could appropriate money for nursing care or something. But that's not really seen as one of the jobs of government in the 1790s. So in the 1790s, when yellow fever strikes Philadelphia, um, Congress shuts down that Congress was meeting in Philadelphia, Congress shuts down and moves to Germantown, which is like part of the greater Philadelphia region right now. But it it wasn't then. At the time, it was, you know, a village outside of the town.
1: In the hills. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So, which would get it away from the mosquitoes. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, they didn't know that, but they knew it wasn't striking there, so they went. Um, George Washington went home to Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson got out of town. I mean, you know, they could all afford to leave, and under the circumstances, honestly, what's to be gained by staying in the city if you can possibly afford to leave? So, I mean, this does get us back to that debate about whether or not it's contagious, but even by this point, people suspected that there was something different about yellow fever, because unlike diseases like smallpox, which spread like wildfire no matter where you go, yellow fever tends to strike a contained area, and getting out of that area doesn't seem to spread it.
0: Interesting. The, the run-of-the-mill average person in Philadelphia, uh, do, they, do they take to self-quarantining for two weeks? They do, actually.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and more than two weeks. The, um, the first deaths in this were in August of 1793, and the deaths continued until November, when you know, the weather was cold enough yeah. that it killed the mosquitoes. And at the height of this epidemic, you had about 100 people dying a day. Now, Philadelphia at the time only has a population of about 50,000.
1: That's a lot of people.
2: That's a lot of people, but 20 or 25,000 of them had probably gotten out of town. So if you have only half of your population there, maybe 25,000 people, and you have 100 people dying every day, that is extremely noticeable and extremely terrifying yes. and just like what we're seeing today everything shuts down the theater shut down the school shut down uh newspapers shut down everything shuts down
1: it's hard to deal with all those bodies actually
2: oh 100 yes 100
1: people a day 100 people is quite a lot for a relatively small town that does not have the infrastructure to deal with that kind of death per day
2: Absolutely, and there is no infrastructure to deal with it. And one of the more interesting things about this was um, back to Dr. Benjamin Rush, who remained in the city, which is very admirable of him. He he had enough money, he could have fled, but he felt that it was his responsibility as a doctor to stay and care for the sick. Now, the best medical knowledge of the day, which turns out to be wrong, but the best medical knowledge of the day suggested that Africans and African-Americans were less susceptible to yellow fever, that either they didn't get it at all, or if they did get it, they got less severe cases of it. And so uh, Benjamin Rush contacts a couple of leaders of the African-American community in Philadelphia. Um, They're Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Um, And both of them had been born in slavery Both of them had acquired their freedom one way or another. They'd become real leaders in the African-American community in Philadelphia. And Benjamin Rush contacts them and says, you know, please, can you help? And they're both Christian ministers actually. Um, One of them will later become the first ordained Methodist, black Methodist minister in the United States. And then Absalom Jones will be the first African-American to be ordained an Episcopal priest in the United States. And that's some ways down the road, but they're both leaders in their church communities. They're both extremely devout Christians. And when Benjamin Rush says, please, can you help? They both say yes. Yeah. And they recruit other members of the African-American community. And it's really African-Americans who do a great deal of the work of nursing the sick, and burying the dead during this epidemic.
1: Wow, that's actually, there's so many perils to today because mm-hmm. we've seen some of the recent reports how people of minorities and really working class in general are on the front lines of dealing with this. So they're yes, also ones more likely to be exposed. Um, and and there's actually some people, oh, we won't get this in this community, but diseases tend to not be that way at all. They, mm-hmm. don't, they don't say I'm gonna target you because of this. They can't. They're just diseases. Yes. Um, so you are seeing a parallel to this day, actually, when you talk. Yes. And I'm assuming they had a lot of tragedy then, too.
2: Oh, yes. Um, so, um, so. As it turns out, you know, several hundred African-Americans died of yellow fever, probably at about the same proportion as everybody else in the city. So this idea, you know, and I mean, Rush wasn't lying to them. He believed this was true. Um, but the idea that African-Americans were somehow immune to this was clearly demonstrated to be false
1: it's exposing it then and we see it right now exposing the inequities now which
2: is yeah and you see it actually in another way as well because um in the debate over where this disease came from um you had shortly before this um shortly before this all happened there is a slave revolt on one of the French islands in the Caribbean. And you have a bunch of French refugees from that revolt who show up in Philadelphia. And, you know, you all know that the Federalists are one of these early sort of political parties in early America, and the Federalists hate all things French. So when this epidemic happens, you know, um, our friend Benjamin Rush is saying, it's bad air, it's rotting vegetables, it's sewage, it's bilge water, you know, it's terrible environmental factors. We need to clean things up. The federalists are saying it's those nasty French refugees. Those nasty French refugees have brought this disease to our shores. So, you know, and I think in the present day, you're seeing just this terrifying, terrifying amount of violence and racism towards Chinese people and other Asian people that, you know, they, they, happened to live on the continent where this disease appeared they didn't make it happen but you get these expressions of racism yeah yeah
1: meeting and scary at the same time it's even like the spanish flu had nothing to do with spain and most likely originated united states
2: probably in Kansas.
1: Yes, but we don't call it the American or Kansas flu. We no, we it. don't. The Spanish flu. Yeah, the, the Spaniards were the first to report masks
2: exactly.
1: associated with it more than any other reason is. Yes, reason. and that relates. You must be talking about the Haitian revolt. Is that what you're talking about? The
2: yes. Yeah. Yep,
1: that's the one. And all the the French when they're saying refugees, people find it hard to m- maybe imagine, but these were actually. European French.
2: Yes, these uh, are European refugees. French refugees. Yes. yes.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Well, thank you There's for having a really me. Really informative, helpful. This, this is going to be good, to
2: you guys.
0: Well, there you have it. What a fantastic interview touching on a wide variety of topics related to pandemics. We thank Martha for that interview.
1: Yes, that was an excellent interview. And this interview brings up several important historical issues uh, that are historically important to look at how humans understand the world. Because pandemics raise questions about us as humans more and how we respond to them, much more than just the science behind it. And there's sort of three ways humans have responded that Martha highlights. One is the turn towards religion. In early historical times, it was common to understand society through religion all around the world. And this is especially prominent during crises that could not be explained. For example, in medieval Europe during the Black Plague or the Black Death, they looked to religious understandings. Some people said it was the configurations of the stars or it was the expression of God's wrath. We know now, for example, the Black Plague was a bacterial infection and Martha highlights that too with the yellow fever and other issues. And this comes to the second issue that comes up with pandemics, and that is blaming others or finding a scapegoat. It's easy and too convenient to blame a group instead of taking responsibility and trying to deal and address the issue, particularly a minority group. For example, in medieval Europe, uh, in Germany, for example, during the Black Death, some communities drew from long-standing discriminatory practice and blamed Jews for the plague, believing without any proof or evidence there was was caused by Jews who poisoned wells purposely. And this belief was spread by rumor and misinformation, which resulted in persecution, murder, and death of all sorts of people. There were massacres in, in Cologne and Frankfurt and other cities. And critics started to realize that blaming Jews made no sense because it wasn't wells causing the problem. It wasn't a poison. And Jews were dying just as well, sadly, as others. And so the real issue comes up with is how do you address the issue of pandemics? And science is probably the most important way that we as humans have been able to address it in a way to have power over it. And Martha helped illustrate how science becomes an early part of understanding of it. And this has continued through this day. And we will talk about science more in our next episode when we talk about the Spanish flu.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of those things they really help us understand what we're dealing with, with this coronavirus. Um, you know, you mentioned the idea of prolifer- proliferating lies about the Jews in Germany uh, during the black death and it, it, they didn't have social media back then. Obviously this is a modern problem that we have, but I'm sure you all have seen on Facebook the, uh, maybe by the time this episode comes out hundreds of different, theories for why coronavirus is all a lie or a hoax or something to that effect, right? But if you look back in history, you find that the human response to pandemics is actually pretty much the same throughout human history. So what we're doing today is really not that different from what happened in the Spanish flu. In fact, that's the other thing you probably see on social media is a lot of people pointing to newspaper articles of 1918 calling for social distancing, right? And Martha mentioned that with the yellow fever of the 1700s the people who could left Philadelphia, and so there really isn't a whole lot that's new about our response here to uh, to this to this health crisis and that isn't to say that you shouldn't worry about deteriorating constitutional rights or the health of small businesses because that's an important thing to keep front and center in your in your sort of purview but it is sort of comforting to know that we've been here before and that this is the way that humans as, as a species deal with pandemics.
1: And we will see that in our next episode when we talk about the Spanish flu and how people were practicing the similar policies of today. And those policies were rather successful when they were practiced properly, social distancing and other sorts of forms of quarantine even.
0: So with that, uh, we're going to wrap up the episode here. We, we thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you for the 1918 Spanish flu in the PA wild. So we're back to local history with our next episode. Hopefully that will come out sometime in June. We're, we're running a little bit behind as we're trying to play catch up to everything that got pushed aside this spring. So uh, hopefully in sometime in June we're going to have that local history podcast on the Spanish flu of 1918. But until then, wherever you are, we hope you are doing well and you're staying healthy. So with that, uh, a hearty farewell from us. Goodbye.